to Nonprofit Lowdown. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. In this podcast, I recommend a book, tool, tip, podcast, or resource that has helped me to build a multi-million dollar nonprofit organization. I've done the research, so you don't have to. Let's get started. Hey, friends, it's Rhea Wong, which means this must be Nonprofit Lowdown. I'm very excited because today my guest is Susie Epstein, Managing Director on the program team of the Robin Hood Foundation. Those of you in New York, I know that you know Robin Hood. So welcome, Susie. Thank you. I'm delighted to talk to you today. And we are delighted to have you. I say we, I guess it's me. The royal we are delighted to have you today. So tell us a little bit about who you are and what it is that you do at Robin Hood. Well, I've been at Robin Hood for 26 years. I joined in 1993 as the 10th employee here, having run an organization that Robin Hood now supports. I oversee investments in the jobs and economic security portfolio, which means I, I fund a lot of job training and placement programs. And I also work on not-for-profit field building initiatives like getting applicants prepared for philanthropic investments. And I also supervise our summer interns. And one of, one of my favorite endeavors actually is this grant readiness insights and training effort that we've been running for a couple of years and that we sponsor every spring for organizations that do not get a lot of philanthropic support and need help making persuasive presentations on their work. We're going to dig into the GRIT program in a second, but for those of us who are not in New York City, can you tell us a little bit about the Robin Hood Foundation and what I would argue Robin Hood has become the poverty-fighting foundation in the city? Robin Hood is 30 years old and is indeed a mighty powerhouse in terms of poverty-fighting and lifting families into economic mobility. We are technically a public charity meaning that we're not sitting on a, on a cash endowment, but we are raising money every year. So half of the foundation's activities are oriented towards cultivating donors, and the other half are towards making investments in New York City-based human services organizations whose primary activities are helping people get to a better level of economic self-sufficiency. We're funding in areas including youth and housing, health, food, education, and job training. And again, for those of us who are not in New York, you know, Robin Hood funding, I think, has often been considered to be a good housekeeping seal of approval, if you will. Why do you think that is? And what sort of process does Robin Hood go to to ensure that they are that they are funding top-notch nonprofits. I concur with you that Robinhood is a strong imprimatur, a strong endorsement, sound program models, and good governance, and explicit and solid evaluation outcomes. I would say the reasons for this are probably multifactorial. In the first place, we have a very seasoned, experienced, dedicated staff that has a background in social services. Many of them have worked in the not-for-profit sector and have a very strong sense of good program models and how to adjust program models and how to deliver a product in a, in a cost-effective way. I would also say that because we, we look 
very carefully at management practices and at, at operations. We are very alert to and helpful to groups that want to improve their systems and technical issues and really become kind of masterful at everything from data collection to human capital to financial and accounting to real estate and facilities management. Because we recognize that and because we help with that, I think that besides giving cash support, we're very adept at helping groups be the best organizations that they can be, stretching their dollars and making sure that their participants are hitting the benchmarks and milestones that they've explicitly aspired to. Yeah, I definitely think Robinhood has been a real vanguard in the institutional funding world that's really started to focus on impact and outcomes and results as, you know, as a mechanism for funding. So tell me a little bit about what the GRIT program is. I know you mentioned it. Certainly, it's an exciting program that we want our listeners to know about. So I'm going to say that GRIT wouldn't exist without Bloomberg Philanthropies, which actually challenged and encouraged us and supported us in doing this five years ago. They were very mindful of the fact that there were many organizations with committed, devoted staffs and very intriguing ideas that were struggling to get philanthropic money. Some of them had some public support, government contracts, may have had a small, loyal base of contributors, but were struggling with demanding evidence-based funders in terms of painting a picture of results and cost efficacy. So they encouraged us to think about field building beyond the grantees that we were already supporting and trying to transmit our learnings in the field to not-for-profits across the city. So GRIT stands for Grant Readiness Insights and Training, and essentially is six sessions of day-long workshops that are designed to help not-for-profits communicate better on their program results, on their good governance, on their costs, and and on their theory of change, meaning how they've designed their program and how they expect activities to produce certain kinds of you know, outputs and outcomes. A lot of this makes sense as far as structuring data and governance and infrastructure in order to position a nonprofit to be able to raise more money. I'm curious, though, is there any aspect which is about connecting people or having a conversation about networks? Because as we know, people give to people. And I'm curious if you have observed whether or not some of the obstacles are beyond just the these infrastructure or data obstacles to raising more money. I agree with you that people give to people. And in fact, two of the workshops are oriented towards cultivating donors, individual donors, and corporate and foundation donors. And actually, the faculty, so to speak, leading those workshops is incredibly gifted in number one, talking about having fundraising plans that are detailed and aggressive 
and kind of rich in getting to know you sorts of activities, you know, besides just making the ask, really doing research on who's interested in certain issues and what their capacity and level of wealth are, how to talk about the most rich and compelling aspects of a program, and really kind of tricks for maintaining contact with new donors, old donors, donors-to-be, etc. So the art and science of fundraising across individuals is a non-trivial component of the of the GRIT series. If Robinhood is known for anything, it's known for the tremendous amount of philanthropic support that they've been able to get out of the, the New York community. And actually, the podcast that I posted just today was with Kara Logan Berlin, who I think used to be one of your fundraisers. So she's an expert in the field. So Kara Berlin was on our team as a major gift officer, and she is also the faculty member who does individual fundraising for grit and has done it each and every year and is actually a rock star in terms of number one communicating her passion for the issue but number two really helping figure out how they can better attract donors yeah totally agree she's such a rock star and her her podcast interview was a master class in individual gift fundraising so i recommend that anybody who's listening to this podcast also go back and listen to the caras cuz it's gold quite literally gold so when we think about folks who might be a good fit for the grit program who should be thinking about applying i'm going to start that answer by saying that 25 years ago, I was a perfect candidate for the GRIT program, and I wish it had existed then, but I will say that I had my own personal GRIT program because I spent a couple of hours with Robin Hood's then executive director, who, in essence, walked me through, you know, walked me through the workshops in, in, in two hours over a couple of days. So at the time, I was the executive director of Sanctuary for Families, which at, at that time was also a startup in the world of domestic violence. And I wanted to get a grant and I pitched our mission, articulating the fact that we wanted to reduce the incidence of domestic violence in New York City. And David Salzman, who was the executive director at the time, kind of laughed and said, that mission is overly broad and I'm not sure how you are going to talk about results on, in that framework. It was very humbling because he essentially outlined how to think about results, whether results was about dozens of people getting orders of protection or divorces or children being connected to mental health interventions or a certain number of people living in a residential shelter for a number of months and then relocating to safe, affordable housing. But he really kind of directed the outcomes that it would be necessary to collect and to talk about. So the ideal candidate for GRIT is someone that has a good program and a sound model, but who has had trouble extrapolating what the results are, can talk about the activities, but isn't as explicit about either results or costs, 
and needs to tweak some of the management departments within an organization, whether that relates to human capital or facilities or financial systems. It's an organization that is, has been operating for a couple of years and that has a functioning board and that has a track record for data collection, but that has not put it all together and synthesized a compelling, persuasive kind of proposal. What I'm hearing is that you are explicitly looking for folks who are kind of a work in progress. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what distinguish, I mean, if intentionally not looking for people who are, have like fully baked the pie, so to speak, what would differentiate someone who would be accepted in your group versus somebody who wouldn't if they're both kind of on that trajectory of getting to a more mature organization? So we're looking at organizations who've been in existence for at least three years and generally no more than 15 years for starters. So a very early stage organization with a staff of three or four people and a couple of volunteers is probably not an ideal candidate. An organization that has a budget of at least $500,000, several board members functioning with committees, and that has a logic model that point to a regular schedule of activities and a trajectory of strides and progress for its clients and that has you know, an explicit budget and has an, you know, an audit and it can show it's in compliance in terms of other legal requirements is, is probably the best candidate. One of the things that we do see is that groups are able to talk about their model and the need that they're answering but not necessarily connect all of their activities to what they want to accomplish. And I'm probably, you know, we had quite a few after-school programs in a cohort one year, and many of them were able to speak very eloquently about, you know, the, the children in the program or the attendance rates, and you know, Monday through Friday, and what kinds of activities folks were joining, whether that had to do with homework help or whether it had to do with arts or sports, but weren't necessarily at the end of the term knitting it all together and saying everybody graduated and was promoted or nobody fell below a C average or or no one got in trouble. So the organizations that are the best candidates are organizations that have the ability to get that information and are driving towards those results, but have not yet highlighted them. And are you looking at general budget size, staff size, you know, constituent serve size? Are those considerations at all? In terms of budget size, we do think groups need to have budgets of at least half a million dollars and probably no more than 10 or $15 million because we do want to help them identify new funders and get to a get to a robust budget that will make a difference. If you're already at 25, 30 million dollars, you're good, you know, one way or another. And our goal isn't really to help organizations necessarily scale or, or start replicating. In terms of staff size, there isn't an ideal staff size other than to have 
number one, enough people to send to GRIT and people to mind the store back, you know, back at headquarters. And in terms of years of operation, three to 15 years is probably the ideal history. And when you talk about participants in the program, are you looking to have like the executive director come back for all six sessions or would would an organization be able to send different members of the team based on the content for the day? So each of the six workshops and they're scheduled every two weeks between April and June is a different topic. That said, we want the executive director to come to each of the workshops in terms of the continuity and in in terms of the fact that kind of a total immersion in, in each of the subject matter disciplines is important. At the same time, we don't want the executive director to come alone um, because there's much more power in numbers just in terms of sharing and in terms of reducing the executive director's isolation back at the back at the ranch. So we encourage executive directors to bring one or two staff members, and there's always there's room for three people from each group, including a board member on occasion, but to bring the appropriate leader from their team for each of the topics. So the finance topic, we encourage them to bring the CFO or the controller or a chief bookkeeper. And for the governance session, to bring the board chair or you know, a, you know another board member who's an officer. And for the evaluation session, to bring, if there's a quality assurance staffer or a director of evaluation, or even a, you know, a, a deputy director of chief of programs to bring that person. So we do want them to be a company that's actually, I think, far better for the organization, but it can be a different person anytime with the executive director being the anchor. How big is the cohort? And are you looking at lots of different types of causes across your portfolio? Generally accepted 12 to 15 groups in the program. We've had 44 groups over the last four years, and and we expect we'll take a, a dozen to 15 this year. We try to keep it small and intimate so that the organizations get a lot of individual attention. We had thought about doing it with a very large cohort, but we think it's far more meaningful to have an intimate group and to have a lot of one-on-one time with the with Robin Hood staff and the leaders of the each of the workshops. So we we've actually tried it different ways in different years. We've had the similar theme like we're going to have mostly children's and youth groups or we're going to have mostly adult groups and they can be related to housing and hunger and health or something. They both actually work very well, partly because Many of these organizations learn from their peers. They have different techniques. They're penetrating different funders. They've tried different approaches that aren't, don't necessarily have to match a particular constituency or client. They also often become partners themselves in terms of delivering multidimensional services within a neighborhood. We've also thought about having organizations from a particular borough or a particular area, just in terms of, I'm going to say, stacking interventions in a convenient way in terms of a community. Actually, all roads are good, so that we haven't seen a particular thematic work better than others, other than we have decided that the organization size and stage is important. And that is one reason we've talked about not having 
the biggest or most mature agencies as, as part of the next cohort. Just to zoom out for a second, everyone in New York wants to be funded by Robinhood. So I'm sure you see many, many applications every year. Can you walk me through some of the biggest mistakes that you see people make when they're applying to Robinhood? And you know, leaving aside that like people who are applying for things that Robinhood doesn't do that are not in your portfolio, what are some other mistakes that you've seen people make in their applications? I don't want to characterize proposals as necessarily mistake riddled or or you know taking an approach that is wrong-headed so much as sometimes being opaque and not really presenting things in as crystallized a way as is needed. The best example I can probably point to are budgets that aren't optimally transparent. So you may have a group that tells you their revenues but is not detailed about the sources of their revenues. So they'll say half comes from the government, half comes from foundations. It's useful to know what government agencies are funding them and the length of those contracts. It's useful to know who the foundations are or whether half of the money is coming from the board or individuals. So I'm going to say that the level, that neglecting to offer a level of detail can be self-defeating. I would say the same thing on the expense side. There are groups that they have they have the information, but perhaps they're collapsing staff and overhead. They're not telling you each person on the staff, you know, not by name, but what their role is. Or they're not breaking up their management into fundraising and administrative overhead. You want to understand what it costs to raise a dollar. You want to understand what I'm buying and how much it costs. And so I'm going to say that when groups don't spell out either revenues in terms of roles and compensation and other overhead needed to produce a result, and then don't show you in detail all of the resources that are needed to deliver the program, including administrative stuff, you can't quite see what's going on and a foundation that cares about due diligence and that asks the question, what am I buying and how much does it cost is not going to be fully satisfied. I'm also going to say that there are often programs that are very good about outlining a problem statement or a need statement. There are, there are groups that do enormous amount of research about research about unemployment. They'll tell you the unemployment rate in the neighborhood and they'll tell you the average earnings of family or that, or, you know, which zip code in the Bronx is the poorest congressional community. That is great as a problem statement, but if it's a job training program, okay, we know we're not curing unemployment. We want to understand how many folks are going to be put to work and whether they're going to make minimum wage or something above that. And, and who is being served? Are, there, are those folks going to be folks who never worked, folks who are formerly incarcerated or struggling with addiction, or are those going to be folks that maybe have an associate's degree or some post-secondary experience? So groups that kind of neglect to give a lot of demographic information so they can tell you who's being served, which actually is going to tell you what resource is needed to implement an effective 
intervention are making mistake, I guess, to, you know, to put a crew just by oversight of some detail. And I say, I would say those are the two often missing links in proposals that are otherwise very admirable and very good. Clarity and transparency on the budget end, both revenue and expenses, and clarity and transparency about the outcomes that you're seeking and the people that you're actually serving and what it would take to get the outcome that you desire as a nonprofit. Exactly. I'm going to say the other mistake, this is a small mistake, but a meaningful mistake is organizations that kind of lowball the costs and underestimate the resources they needed because if they think it's going to make them more competitive. And honestly, it doesn't because if you're saying we can do this on the cheap, but actually you really do need another counselor or case manager, you do need a translator, or you really do need an administrative coordinator and a receptionist, and what it's you're shooting, you're sabotaging your your request. It's better to be honestly. I I, I think lowballing things is also a big mistake. It's much better to be quite robust and let and let the funder say, "I'm only going to give you ninety percent of what you need." <laughs> that 80% of what you need is going to be very adequate. Yeah, I, Susie, I think that's such an important point. And also, I mean, it, it feels a little bit like damned if you do, damned if you don't, right? Because I think, you know, on the one hand, you don't want funders to think that you have blown out your overhead. And on the other hand, you don't want to, as you say, lowball and under-resource the actual things that you need to do the mission. And I think particularly for organizations that are used to government funding, that we know anything that's not strictly a program is very hard to come by. It, it's, it takes, I think, some shifting internally and in the mindset to be able to accurately represent costs. Agreed. And costs are important because you want to understand what a rate of return is on an investment and you want to the relationship. I mean, this is in Robinhood's DNA. You want to understand the relationship between benefits and costs. And it is often very mighty. Do you, you know what I mean? Because often the benefits are, you know, four, five, ten times what the costs are. But you want to be clear about the cost. Well, and in my work, I've often found too that nonprofits are not actually accounting for all of the different outcomes that are attributable to their activities. So because they're so they're kind of in it, it's hard for them to think about the, you know, secondary or tertiary outcomes, which, you know, I, I could argue you could might or might not be able to take credit for, but I think to be able to think more expansively about the work that you do uh, above and beyond just the direct people that you're serving. I agree with that, but I'm and I'm going to say it that's kind of a twofold thing. Sometimes outcomes that you don't think about do relate to people that you're serving, but they're less obvious. I'm going to give an I, I'm going to give an example, and I kind of referred to this a couple of minutes ago. If you're running an after-school program, maybe for middle school kids or high school kids, and you have some very nice academic outcomes, okay, and not a single child gets pregnant or gets arrested, that's an outcome. That's a harm reduction outcome. That's meaningful. People aren't necessarily counting that because they're looking at your report card, but. You're keeping children safe and out of trouble, which is actually very important for their trajectory in the future. That's an outcome. So that's one thing, and that has to do with participants served. Other outcomes may have to do with taxpayer savings, right? You're if you if you're working with 
formerly incarcerated individuals and they don't get themselves reconvicted, you're obviously saving the public money in terms of incarceration again. So that's an outcome, even though even though perhaps someone who's been formerly incarcerated, you know, isn't necessarily making their way to two and a half times the poverty rate or something like that. They may remain, you know, on the borderline of being poor. On the other hand, there may be many other outcomes. They're not relapsing. They're not recidivating. Those are outcomes. So I do think and I do think this is one thing that kind of grit offers and it's kind of very nuanced and under the surface is really thinking very broadly about what is produced by an intervention. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I was actually working with an organization that has environmental outcomes and we were thinking about not just the work that they were doing directly with their stakeholders, but also the cost and impact of the sort of larger environmental outcomes and health outcomes for individuals, which it gets very hard to measure, I will say. They are hard to measure. It underscores the importance of what I'm going to call logic models, which is actually an understanding of the problem statement that inputs the activities and what's and then what's produced and then the ultimate result and impact. But you have to think very you have to think very broadly and you have to think about whether the intervention is causing it also. If you're a job training program and someone gets new teeth, but you're not, you're not doing the, de- the dentist part, that's not an outcome that you're necessarily producing. If someone gets a driver's license because they say, what I really, what I really want is to be a commercial driver and this program is kind of opening my mind to that possibility and giving me a small stipend to, you know, to take my road test, then yes, you're, resp- you're responsible for that outcome. So Susie, what is the role of qualitative evaluation in thinking about the effectiveness of, of an organization? So just as an example, one thing that I have been thinking about is Say, let's say after school program as an example, you know, certainly we can look at the academic outcomes, we can look at test scores and so forth. And I know that a lot of folks in the field would talk about the, you know, socio emotional growth of a child or the, you know, the, the change made through the bonds that they've made with other kids or adults, which feels really important, but is not so easy to measure. And I'm just wondering how you think about those more qualitative aspects of program quality. I love that question. I'm going to give you kind of a bifurcated answer. I do think that qualitative evaluation is very important in terms of, and I'm going to call it formative evaluation. So in terms of thinking about program implementation, whether participants feel well-treated, whether they feel heard and satisfied, whether they are they feel comfortable and safe in a space, whether they feel like they're absorbing information. I mean, that's applicable to many kinds of programs. And the way that you're going to get at that is not really through numbers and counting, but through interviews and focus groups and observation and surveys. And, and, and you're using your words, okay? And, and, and I think of that as qualitative. I do think that at Robinhood, where the goal is poverty fighting and mobility, you do have to think a lot about quantitative evaluation. You are really looking at numbers and at change that reflects earnings or indicators 
that obviously three-year-olds are not earning money, seven-year-olds are not, but that reflects indicators on the road to better earnings. And yes, I agree in terms of social and emotional intelligence is one of the key critical factors that does poise someone for success later in life. But you can measure that using quantitative information in terms of self-concept, self-awareness. You're using data instruments and, and thinking about the change before a program intervention and after. And frankly, it is kind of, it is basically quantitative. So I'm a fan of learning and measurement. I'm a fan of both quantitative and qualitative evaluation. But I, I do think in terms of goals that have to do with social services and upward mobility, you have to think about quantitative stuff. Well, Susie, last question for you. For folks who are interested in applying to the GRIT program, what is the deadline and where can they find more information? What should they be aware of as they apply? So the program starts in April. The deadline for the application is January 17th. Okay. The application is not not too onerous. It's, it's three or four pages. And there are questions about the program model, about evaluation, about the audit, about the board. And following our review of the applications, we do have telephone interviews with the executive directors. And we'll be doing that throughout February and then giving people an ample time before the program starts so that they can rearrange their schedules a little bit because it is a full day every other week or do some of the reading in advance, et cetera. We'll make sure to put the application in the show notes. So for anybody listening who's interested in applying, you can go straight to the show notes, find the application. And if folks have any questions, should they contact you? Is there another point of contact that they should ask? So yeah, the application is also on our website. I forgot to say that. So uh, one looks at robinhood.org. The application is there. And the contact information for the point persons, you know, on GRIT is also there. But people can reach out to info at Robinhood, and then someone will get back to them if they have specific questions on the great. or on the application itself. Yeah. Great, great, great. Well, we will let everybody who is listening know. So definitely consider applying to this wonderful program. And in the meantime, thank you so much for being on the show. And actually, we'd probably love to have you back after the GERT program so we can talk about what went well. I would love to do that. And thank you for having me. It was really Of course. Thank you so much. Great. Bye.